The scripture reading for this morning is from Joel chapter 3. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. If you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples, you have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the, land, into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley. Come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflowing, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and, their star, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're finishing Joel this morning, and uh, his message, as we've worked over through Joel over the last several weeks, um, it's a message that mirrors not just the rest of the Old Testament prophets, but the New Testament as well. The message of Joel is, is picked up. You hear it in places like, uh, well, from Paul in 1 Thessalonians and, and 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Peter in 1 and 2 Peter touches on these very same themes. John, of course, the author of Revelation, touches on these themes. Jesus 
of course, as well. Jesus speaks more about hell than he does about heaven. And he describes hell in some very chilling detail. And the message, not just of Joel, but of the Bible, is this, that judgment begins with the household of God. Remember, that's what we saw when we began our study of Joel, that judgment begins with the household of God. God is purifying his people, preparing them for his presence through trials. He used locusts in Joel. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's invading armies or persecution from those who are in power. All of these, though, are a sign. They're a sign of the coming day of the Lord that Joel has been talking about throughout his book. God uses these trials to cause people to repentance, and then he promises restoration to them, restoration beyond our ability to imagine, especially as we saw a couple weeks ago, that great promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a blessing that would be experienced by the people of God, that, that they would be able to enjoy with the coming day of the Lord. That outpouring took place on the day of Pentecost. Now, all who put their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, receive this, this blessing, this outpouring of the Spirit of God. All who look to him receive that gift to which Joel pointed. But now we come to Joel chapter 3, and we read about the end. We're told about the close of the age that we are in right now, in which the gospel is to go forth to the nations. We're told about the day Jesus said would come, like a thief in the night. All at once, unexpected. We're told about the valley of decision. The great and cataclysmic day of the Lord when all those who have rejected Christ in their life are gathered and a decision is made. Not by them, but by God. The judge of all the earth in the valley of decision will declare his verdict over those who have rejected him once and for all eternity. But we're also told about a second valley in this passage, a valley in which blessings of God flow from the very heart of God himself down upon his people in abundance. You see, Joel chapter 3 is ultimately meant to be a comfort to God's people, a promise of vindication and a promise of restoration beyond what we can imagine. But it makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, even to have this awesome baptism and the joy that's associated with that, and then to open up Joel chapter 3, it just felt like this jarring transition, didn't it? Of course it did. But why, why does this make us uncomfortable? Could it be in part, because even... Though as Christians, we've escaped God's wrath through faith in Jesus Christ, we still don't like the idea of a God who sits in judgment over people, unless it's, of course, the worst of people, then, then we want that. Not just Joel, but the Bible as a whole shakes us out of such sentimentalities and does so for our good. So let's wrap up our study of Joel by looking at those two valleys, the valley of decision and the valley of blessing. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We're thankful for this portion of your word. Lord, this is one of those hard parts that, that we're tempted to, 
to just kind of read through and, and, and have our heads, you know, scratching our heads a little bit, not sure what to make of it, but then go on looking for those parts that help us live our life now. Lord, we're thankful that you help us to live our life now, that you've given us your spirit to walk faithfully before you and your word to help us to do so. But Lord, your word is full of passages to point to that day that is coming and call us to live now in light of that day. And so we pray that as this portion of your word, which very much does that very thing, is being read and proclaimed, Lord, would you help us to live now in repentance and faith and filled with hope for the day that is to come rather than dread. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So first we're gonna look at the value decision. I'm not gonna go back and read through all 16 verses, but the section, you know, chapter three, verses one through 16 is where where Joel talks especially about the valley of decision. The valley of decision is a metaphor uh, about what it would mean for the people um, who have rejected Jesus to stand before God in judgment. So verse 14, again, you read, you read it there, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Back in verse 2, Joel talks about the valley of Jehoshaphat, now, the, that literally is translated the valley in which the Lord judges, the valley where the Lord will judge. There's no particular place called the valley of Jehoshaphat in the Bible. There is a king, king of Judah, named Jehoshaphat, but this is something that we can, we can take as a, a metaphor to, to talk about the, the enemies of God, those who have rejected Jesus Christ, being brought before him for judgment. Jesus talks about this day in Matthew chapter 25, verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. What will happen there? People will be judged, Joel tells us, for sins committed against God's people. When you read through that, did you catch that? We tend to think of <clears throat> judgment primarily in terms of individual people and their response to God, their, their disobedience concerning God's law, the rejection of him as, as king and sovereign over their life. But what Joel does, and not just Joel, but you see this in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Obadiah, one of the things that they hit on is the, the nations being judged for the way in which they treated God's people. And you see that in Joel in verse two, for instance, Verse 2 says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. And then when you look over at verse 19 of Joel 3, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. Now, how do you make sense of that? Why would God judge people for the way in which they treated his people? Well, it really all goes back to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. When God said concerning Abraham's offspring, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. People will be judged for sins committed against God's people, not just for their violation of God's law, for their pride and all those things, but also for their sins against God's people. Joel also tells us there will be no escape. 
There'll be no escape from this valley. There'll be no negotiating with God in verse 4. God says, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? Another way to say that is, are you trying to pay me off? Right here, I'm bringing you into my presence. I'm gonna, you're you're going to face my judgment. My verdict will be declared. The decision will be made. And you're going to try to pay me off now? There'll be no escape. There'll be no negotiating with God, no resisting God. In verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men. This is, this is kind, of, um, it's kind of ironic. I mean, God's saying to, through Joel, concerning the enemies, go ahead and gird yourself up for war. I'm calling you to the valley of decision, the valley of my judgment. I'm going to pronounce my decisions over you. However, just go ahead and, and beat those plowshares into swords. Go ahead and try to prepare yourself for war. You have no armament. You have no ability to, to come before me and do battle. You let, the, let the weak among you say that they're mighty warriors. It's, it's hopeless. There is no escaping. There's no resisting in the valley of decision. What do we think about the wrath of God? How should we think about God's wrath. A couple things we need to remember. First of all, that God's wrath is a function of his holiness against sin. God is a holy God. Go reread Isaiah chapter 6 and be reminded of Isaiah before the the throne of God in the temple being filled with his glory and realizing that he is a man of unclean lips and he lives among a people of unclean lips. He is undone by the holiness of God. You cannot diminish the wrath of God without also diminishing in our thinking his holiness. If we're going to recognize that God is a holy God, we have to acknowledge that at the same time, for God to be holy, he must judge sin. But God is not a God of wrath. That phrase in and of itself is a misunderstanding concerning who God is. Wrath is not one of God's intrinsic perfections in the way that holiness is one of his intrinsic perfections or love is one of his intrinsic perfections. Where there is no sin, there would be no wrath. God's wrath is a function of his holiness against sin. But God's wrath is also an evidence of his love for his people. If you're a parent, you can understand this to just a a little degree, right? All loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath precisely because of the love. You see something ruining someone you love. A a parent sees something ruining a child or the the way in which the child is living is ruining themselves. And you don't just kind of sit back passively and go, oh, well, it stirs something in you. You feel angry. You want to change it. You want to come to their defense and their rescue. This is an expression of love, not something that's contrary to love. The difference between us as parents and God is that God never flies off the handle in his anger. God is not without emotion. He's never controlled by his emotion. So how can a God of love be a God of wrath? He's not a God of wrath. He is a God of holiness who must judge sin. 
And he is a God of love who must protect his beloved. How should we respond then to Joel's warning? If you're here this morning, you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ, I hope you will recognize the gravity of this moment right now. You have heard things concerning ultimate reality. You've had some sense that there will be a God. You're going to face judgment. You've got some sense within you that that's the case. And now there's clarity that you're receiving. God's word has been proclaimed to you. It says that there will be a day in which God comes, in which it will be too late. Now is the time. As we saw a couple weeks ago, looking at 2 Corinthians 6, now is the day of salvation. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Repent and be saved. You know, Acts chapter 17 Paul's on uh, Mars Hill. He's talking to some of the brightest people in one of the most cosmopolitan cities, and he says this, He, that is God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If Paul can say to some of the brightest minds of his age, if you want to get a better understanding of whether or not you should take seriously this claim that there is a God who will come and judge, investigate what it means for for Christ to be risen. My challenge to you is to do the very same. Where do I start to try to figure out if what this guy on the stage is saying is true? Consider who Jesus is and what the Bible claims that he did, that he rose from the dead. Wrestle with that central claim of Christianity that Christ is risen. I would love to walk alongside you as you do so. I would love to connect with you, to read a book with you, to talk with you about that, because there is no more important decision than you can make than your decision concerning who Jesus Christ is. Repent and be saved. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you're hearing this message from Joel, do what God's people were called through Joel to do. Hear the alarm. The trumpet is sounding, right? Repent. Be restored. The whole point of Joel with respect to God's people listening to it was for them to be woken up, to be brought to their senses, to see in which they had been living in a way that was contrary to God's will, rejecting his rule, living as, you know, presuming upon him. How many of us do the same? You know, let this message be a call back into reality. Repent. Walk in faith before God. Receive now restoration of the locust years in ways that are so hard for us to fathom and then the promise of restoration beyond our imagining on that day when Jesus returns. Let's turn with that then to the second point, the valley of blessing. And you see word of the valley of blessing in verses 17 through 21. We don't, we're not told where the valley of Shittim is in this passage. We are told what happens there. We're told about all this great blessing that's being poured out. Let me just touch on these real quick. The first is the the blessing of vindication. The blessing of vindication. Verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. God will judge the enemies of his people and that will be for them their vindication. Now, we, you might be sitting there going, I don't feel like I need to be vindicated for anything. And, and maybe you don't. I mean, maybe you haven't been sinned against in such a, a grievous way. Some of you have been. 
And some of you understand how, how to wrestle with this idea of, will I take vengeance into my own hands, or will I leave vengeance to God and trust that in that day I will be vindicated? Some of you know what that feels like. Many of us, if not most of us, don't. But the people of God did then, and so many of God's people throughout the world do now. Understand what it means to let God be the one who will take vengeance in his time and wait for his vindication in light of the evil done against them. Miroslav Vof, uh, Tim Keller tells this in his book, The Reason for God. Miroslav Vof was a Croatian theologian, um, is a Croatian, the, the Cro- Croatian theologian at Yale. Um, he experienced that, that kind of violence and bloodshed in the Balkans. He said this, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. You have the ability to actually say, I am not going to take vengeance in my own hands. These people have wronged me. This nation has wronged me. You know, whatever. I'm not going to take vengeance in my own hands. I'm going to lay that down. the, 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 the way in which I've been, you know, shamed and, and treated and all that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust that God will vindicate me in that day. Vengeance will be his. He will either glorify his name by rescuing those people who have hurt me and giving them the same grace that I don't deserve, or he will bring justice perfectly and swiftly, and I will be vindicated. This is not just an Old Testament thing. Read the book of Revelation. Read chapter 6. You hear this. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There's so much of the theology of the Old Testament prophets just in those few verses right there. God sovereignly raising up enemies who will persecute his people. No one, none of his people are persecuted apart from God's permission always to the end that their faith is purified. And then those very people that God raised up to do that will themselves be judged because they are culpable for their sin. And so here in in Revelation, we get this picture of these people who have been martyred and they're crying out, God, how long until you avenge our blood? And God says, just wait a little longer. At just the right time, people will be called into the valley of decision. So the blessing of vindication. But Joel also tells us about the blessing of what I'll call all things new. Taking that from Revelation 21, 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This great picture of restoration that Joel's been talking about up until, you know, through the earlier chapters, but then here in verse 18, 
And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water, water the valley of Shittim. This picture of abundance. There's so many cattle up on the hills <laughs> that, are, that are given so much you know, grass to graze that the milk's just flowing down. You know, the, the, the grape harvest is so great that the, the wine is just flowing down. This picture of abundance that God tells us about through Joel and through Isaiah and so many of the other prophets. And then again, there in Revelation, that promise of all things made new. The prophets also point to the resurrection. You don't get there directly from Joel, but in a place like Isaiah chapter um, uh, 35, I think it is. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Even the, the prophets anticipate that day in which we will be raised, resurrected from the dead in order to enjoy this abundance that God has restored to the earth that he has created. The blessing of vindication, the blessing of, of all things new, of complete and total restoration, and then finally, the blessing of the very presence of God. It's the last line in Joel. The Lord dwells in Zion. God will be with his people. His people shall be with their God. What a day of rejoicing it will be. Two valleys. The Lord Jesus stands over both. The Lord Jesus stands over both. He is the lamb from whose throne judgment comes in Revelation. But he has willingly borne the wrath pictured in Joel in our place. The sun, the moon, and the stars were darkened, Joel tells us about. We know that on the cross, the sun was darkened. Darkness covered the land as the wrath of God that sin demands over against the holy God was poured out on Jesus in our place. So that now... Jesus is, for those who look to him for their salvation, the source of all blessings. This play, this, this, you know, Joel talks about a stream beds of Judah flowing with water, a fountain coming forth from the house of Israel. There's no river that goes through Jerusalem. Who is the fountain that flows from the temple? It's Jesus himself who tabernacled among us, who is the very presence of God, from whom all blessings flow. Look to him. Look to him and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this portion of your word. We pray that you would help us to not just set it aside and think about it no longer, but to actually, by your grace and through the power of your spirit, take it deep into our hearts, Lord, that we might live this day and tomorrow and the day after that in light of that day that is coming. Let it be for us, O oh God, a day that we can anticipate, being a day marked by joy and not a day marked by dread. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.